God, am I wheezy on my microphone right now? Hello. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we serve comics knowledge on the half shell, one issue at a time. My name is Jessica Frazier, and I'm joined by my co-host, the righteous reader, Mike Thompson. (laughs) Hello. Hello, hello, hello. Well, the purpose of our podcast is to study comic books in ways that are both fun and informative. We want to look at their coolest, weirdest, and silliest moments, as well as examine how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. Today, we're going to be discussing movies from a genre that is very near and dear to my heart, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Now, we will be doing a deep dive into the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles franchise, but stay tuned for a future episode. We are going to be talking about the live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films from the 90s. The drama leading up to the making of the films, the ingenuity and detail involved in the filming itself, along with the casting crew and some of their recollections and anecdotes. But before we do that, Mike, what is one cool thing you've read or watched lately? Well, I know what we have both been watching, actually, and I, f- I feel like uh, maybe you need to start off this conversation. <laughs> well, so, yeah, because I, I, I see that you have written the same thing as I, as we do have a shared file here. <laughs> well, I watched the first few episodes of MODOK, which just came out this year, and it is witty and wonderful. I think it came out like a week ago. Oh, sweet. Yeah, like it's real fresh. Well, thank you to my friend who was like, we need to watch this because you'll really enjoy it. And in fact, I did. <laughs> so, and, and now that I have my head sort of out of Turtle World, I'll be able to watch a little bit more. But for those of you who haven't seen it yet, it follows a blundering Marvel villain with a big head and a super tiny body named Modok. He flies around on this little hover in this little hover situation. It's very funny. And it follows his evil ventures and how they bleed into his family life in the suburbs. And it is produced by a variety of people, one of whom is Seth Green. And the show does have a very robot chicken vibe to it. It's done in claymation and can get pretty violent and graphic in a claymation kind of way. But I wouldn't say it's a kid's show. <laughs> and it's also got a star-studded cast. Uh, Patton Oswalt is in it. Amy Garcia, Ben Schwartz, whom I loved in Parks and Rec. John Hamm, Nathan Fillion, Whoopi shows up. There's a ton of people. I'm only four episodes in out of the 10 that comprise season one, but I'm super looking forward to laughing my way through the remaining six potentially tonight. Uh, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but Alan Tudyk shows up in a role where he sounds almost exactly <laughs> like Joker from Harley Quinn. Oh, I'm so It's excited. great. So what did you think about it? We loved it. So Sarah and I wound up binging it last Friday. When we didn't have the kids because we knew it was not a friendly show. As you get the warning at the very beginning talking about how this is a mature show and it is not not for small children. I think we binged all of it in one night because, you know, it's only 10 episodes and they're half hour. So we didn't know much about it other than I had seen a promo image for it. I had seen a bunch of nerds (laughs) getting mad about it online. But I also knew that Patton Oswalt was involved, so I was already sold because anything that man touches i will consume we wound up just being blown out of the water and it's so funny 
while also being weirdly faithful to Marvel Comics lore. And in a weird twist, (laughs) we wound up adopting a dog two days later. And it was very unexpected. It was a very spur of the moment thing where we saw this dog online and then decided to apply for him and we got him. And I didn't think this was actually going to fly, but Sarah agreed to it, much to her chagrin, (laughs) I'm sure, later on. But we named him Modog. So Modog stands for miniature organism designed only for gnawing because he's a puppy and he's chewing on everything as puppies do. We call him Mo for short. There's a graphic designer at my company who immediately whipped up an image of him in <laughs> Modoc's doomsday chair. So it's his face, but then Modoc's body. It's great. And I've shared it everywhere. And now I have a, a new life goal where I want to have Patton Oswalt meet my dog and then <laughs> sign a printing of that graphic. So Patton Oswalt, future friend of the <laughs> podcast, please hit us up. That was a really cute picture. I literally LOL'd when I saw it. <laughs> It was very good. It's also been turned into a Slack emoji in, in our work Slack. And as a result, it's just getting <laughs> spammed by everybody on my team. Deservedly it's so. It's really good. <laughs> it's so cute. Now on to our main topic, which is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films. First, I want to give a shout out to the resources I used in my research of these films. IMDB.com, MovieWeb.com. There was a whole interview with the cast and crew of the making of the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle films from the HollywoodReporter.com, TurtlepediaFandom.com, which is very well organized and has tons of information with resources cited, and the film The Definitive History of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which is basically the history told through compiled interviews of those involved in making this amazing franchise. So, these live-action films. I don't know about you, I absolutely remember watching these as a kid, although I didn't realize that until I started watching them again and was immediately able to recall every scene from the first film. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we were also very much, and I've said this before on the podcast, we were very much a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle household. So, it makes total sense that we would have watched that at some point, probably numerous times. I presume you also watched them as a kid. What was your experience with the films? I mean, I was born in the early 80s. I was very much that target demographic for the Turtles. My mom actually took me to see the first movie, I think, four times. Oh, wow. I think I mentioned in that Saturday morning cartoon episode that the last time she just sat in the lobby and read a book. I still love that story. Yeah. Which, if you you ever meet my mom, that that checks out. She's like, man, he'll be fine. He'll be fine. (laughs) What's the worst that could happen? Letting my eight-year-old go into a movie theater alone. (laughs) But yeah, I saw both sequels in the theater too. I think I saw The Secret of the Ooze twice. And then the third one was fine. I mean, we got it on video and I remember watching it a bunch of times with my siblings because they were pretty young and we would just pop it on because it was something that could entertain all of us. But it wasn't one of those things that we needed to see over and over again in the movie theater as opposed to the other ones. I had so many of the action figures when I was a kid and I was just addicted to the cartoon for like longer than was cool. Hard same. Very much so. But I weirdly wasn't really into the comics. The the Ninja Turtle comics were just never something that I was all that curious about. I was already into Marvel and DC and Image and all that stuff. Yeah, very nice. 
I'm going to get into production actors and success of each of the films, along with some other fun facts. But first, can you please give me a brief overview of the first Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle film? Sure. So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is the proverbial superhero origin movie. It's set in a New York that's still rocking the grit of the 80s, and it's also showing a bit more urban decay than we're used to. This New York is in the throes of a crime wave due to the Foot Clan, which has been recruiting wayward teens and eventually training them to be ninjas, of all things. (laughs) I don't quite understand how you go from recruiting teens to just commit petty burglaries and then rewarding them with a giant warehouse full of video arcade cabinets and skateboarding ramps and graffiti walls and regular or menthol cigarettes, as was demonstrated (laughs) in... In the scene that we get to see a very young Sam Rockwell selling the Foot Clan to teenagers, the movie introduces us to the Ninja Turtles, their leader Splinter, the vigilante Casey Jones, and TV reporter April O'Neil as they all deal with the crime wave in their own ways, but then they eventually work together to defeat Shredder and his army. Yeah, that totally sums it up. What did you think of the film overall on the rewatch? Honestly, I was surprised by how well it's aged. It's not like the current crop of superhero movies where those are clearly meant to be watched by adults who are fans of the franchise and then also make it accessible to kids. This was clearly meant to be a kid's movie that was tolerable for their parents who got dragged to the theater. It's a lot darker and grittier than I remembered, and a lot of those elements really went over my head as a kid. The Turtles and Splinter themselves, I also think, are really impressive, which isn't surprising since the costumes and puppetry were handled by the Jim Henson Company. I mean, when you hire the best, you get the best. Mm -hmm. But yeah, most kids during this era had really only been exposed to the cartoon, so it's a little weird at how serious they went with the overall tone and storyline. My only real complaint was how kind of janky Shredder's costume was, Mm. but he actually doesn't show up that much. It's like he's wearing... Do you remember those like weird sequined evening dresses that were all the rage in the late 80s, <laughs> early 90s? Oh, yes. The ones with the shoulder pads. Yeah, it kind of looks like someone took the fabric from that and then attached Shredder's blades and, and shoulder pads. And it's also the wrong color. It's red. They really needed to give him a cape and a belt. And I would have been way more okay with that. But yeah, it's fine. Yeah. What about you? How do you feel about it? I think it held up pretty well on the rewatch, like you said. It was super fun, as fun as I remember it. And I really liked April's role in the film, which was kind of, I would say, edgy for like the 90s. She's independent. She lives alone, although her boss has absolutely no boundaries. He just fucking shows up there with his kid and the kid's fucking stealing things from her. Like, screw that. Don't bring your kid here. She lives in this weird shithole of an apartment, too. (sighs) Which doesn't make sense to me because she's apparently a really well-respected and popular TV journalist. Mike, we're women. We can't both have success and nice things. I'm sorry. That would be really threatening to the patriarchy. I really dig that she follows stories regardless of what others may advise her she should do. Like, she's not about doing fluff pieces. She's just like, no, nah, let's do this thing. And at one point, she's almost mugged, and she doesn't tell her boss because why? Why Why? Why should she? Like, nothing happened, really. 
And when he asks her about it, she has this, like, for what attitude, which I'm like, yeah, exactly. For what? Like, why is she? I'm not going to call my boss and be like, I tripped on the sidewalk and sprained my ankle. I don't know. It didn't make any sense. So. Like, that producer really was, he was really there as an excuse to introduce the character of his son. That was really the only purpose that he was there for. He popped in and out. He wasn't doing much with that. No. Yeah. Also, the animatronics were surprisingly great. I know it's Jim Henson, but like the 90s were a really good decade for good animatronics between like that and Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. You know, absolutely. Very, very good. So their movements were just really convincing. And we'll get into part of why that is in just a couple of minutes when I talk about the animatronics and the costumes. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about that, actually. Yeah. So picture this. It's 1989. (laughs) (laughs) And comic book movies were not wildly popular after a couple of recent superhero flops. Their turtles were initially discovered by Gary Proper, who was a road manager for the comic Gallagher. He had previously worked with Kim Dawson and got her on board as producer, and they signed on Bobby Herbeck as the writer. This was kind of cool because during the writing process, there was a lot of back and forth between Herbeck and the original writers, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird, to ensure that the movie was staying true to the comic. And per an interview I read, it was definitely a longer process than Herbeck had initially thought it would be. That makes sense because, to be completely honest, the movie feels like a pretty faithful adaptation of the tone of the original comic, which was very over the top and gritty and violent. Yeah, absolutely. And I I do like that they went back and checked instead of just said, okay, well, we have the rights and we're going to run and do what we want to do with this. So now that they had a script, they had to find funding and a studio and a way to make the turtles come to life. So they pitched the idea all around Hollywood. All three of them were incredibly enthusiastic, but the studios were super wary after the recent comic book-related box office failures. So out of curiosity, which movies were those Uh, that failed? Howard the Duck. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and so it didn't do well. And there was another one before that, too, although it doesn't say on here. But Howard the Duck was the big one that people were like, yikes, we're going to go ahead and back off. That was... That was George Lucas and Steven Spielberg, and they thought they had, like, the next Star Wars and E.T. on their hands. I've never even heard of it. Oh. Oh, we should totally do a retrospective on it at some point. It's based on a Marvel Comics character who is a anthropomorphic duck. They've had a full animatronic suit. It's, like, you know, Ninja Turtle-quality animatronics and puppetry. It had all sorts of talent involved with it, and it was one of the biggest box office bombs. So that makes a lot of sense, actually. Because that'd be the closest thing where you're talking about anthropomorphic comic characters. I'm getting flashes of like a big duck costume. So I may have even seen flashes of it in my life. It's a weird movie. Okay. It's real weird. Leah Thompson, you know, the mom from Back to the Future is in it. And this was like at the height of her popularity too. Oh no, poor Leah. It's real uncomfortable. There's a whole scene where she's in bed with Howard in lingerie. Ew, with a duck? It's very weird. I don't like and it. very uncomfortable. It's weird enough having these teenage, like teenage, they are supposed to be, fun fact, they're supposed to be yeah. 15 during this, that they're all like, awooga, over April. It's like, ooh, like she is <sighs> definitely a yeah. full adult, a full adult. 
Like you are 15 years old and you're a turtle. Like, (laughs) and that's unfortunately something that's carried on. I feel like the one thing that they don't actually ever do a very good job of adapting is the teenage aspect. Yes. I have hope for what we have coming in the future. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, So they pitched the idea all around Hollywood after those comic book related box office failures. After months of persistent nudging, they finally wore down Tom Gray, who was the head of production for Golden Harvest, and got approval Mm. to greenlight the project with a $3 million budget. And apparently they already had another couple million already floating around. Like, yeah, no problem. Just, but we need more. They were already huge. And the funny thing is, this is very much like how they actually got their first pitch for getting the action figures made. Mm Mm-hmm where their agent was driving around with this giant turtle. I think Playmates was the last toy manufacturer that was actually willing to talk to them, and they agreed to it. But they had been making pitches right and left, and no one had picked them up. It was just, it sounded like such a whole thing that they were just like, Fox, how about you? How about blah, blah, blah? And everybody was like, whoa, whoa, you need to leave. Like, (laughs) exit through where you came from, because we don't want anything you have to tell us. Don't even take the main exit. Go out the servant's exit. Yeah, we don't want to see you leave. Just do it. If you can teleport, that'd be great. We don't want any association with you or your trash. Get out. (laughs) Oh, no. So they hired Steve Barron as director. Right. Barron wanted to make sure that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were a hybrid of the lighter animated series, along with the darker vibe of the comics, which is why there is that kind of middle point it is a little darker but it's maybe not as dark as the comics and that's intentional they did want to make it family friendly because the comics really aren't they're very violent they're very graphic but you can put a dark spin on things and still make it family friendly baron had also worked with jim henson on a previous project and new henson's creature shop would make the turtles more fully believable on screen now the issue was that this was 1990. Jim Henson was arguably the biggest name in the animatronics game, which of course meant his services were not going to be cheap. This edition would be $6 million, which of course was far over their budget. They also had to convince Henson to actually take part in the film because he was concerned that it was too violent for what his puppets should portray and might be a risky move due to his younger fan base took some sweet talking from Baron, which seems to be kind of the name of the game (laughs) for the Turtles. (laughs) But Henson finally agreed to assist. And this was the first and what is thought to be the last time that Henson lent out the name to use in this way. Hmm. Yeah. They had to get another studio involved because they just simply did not have enough money. Right. And finally signed on with Fox for a larger budget, which also fell through. I read an interview that said within 10 days of when they were supposed to start filming, they still didn't have the funding. Wow. So they were cutting it incredibly close. I mean, it had literally everything else. Come to think of it. I mean, yeah, that's wild. And then also, given the time that this came out, this has got to be one of the last films that Jim Henson was personally involved with before he died. Yeah. Actually, we'll get into that. We will. Okay. Yeah. And not even on this this part of it. But we'll, 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 we'll get there. We'll get there. New Line Cinema eventually came through and signed on to produce, but offered significantly less money than the $6 that had been proposed. 
Golden Harvest owner Raymond Chow agreed to fund the remainder of the expenses, whatever those were. Okay, I mean, that was a great bet for him. Oh, pfft, yeah, absolutely. Shoot. So this is wild. We were talking about Jim Henson. Let's talk about the costumes, because those things were yeah. awesome. There were actually two sets of costumes for each turtle. One for the animatronics, so that there was expression through the movement of the mouth and eyes, which were controlled through radio remote control, and had a person inside the costume, of course. One of the funny mishaps was that they were trying to figure out why the turtle heads and faces were, like, turning on and off and moving when they weren't supposed to, and vice versa. They figured out that the radio frequencies for the remote controls were so strong that they were being interfered with on the public channel. So they ended up having to go to a military radio channel instead (laughs) so they could move their turtle faces properly. That's amazing. (laughs) So the second type of turtle suit was used for fight and action scenes. And it was literally the same suit, but without the animatronics. And all the animatronic stuff was stored like in the head and in and the cooling devices too. what they were saying for like the actual animatronics, not for the person, screw them, right? But for the animatronics were all in the shell, which makes total sense, mm-hmm. right? It must have been so heavy. 70 pounds. Damn. And they didn't say the difference between the two turtle suits, but. They were saying that the martial artists were in 70-pound suits. So I can only imagine that these other ones were heavier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And they did the full latex. One of the articles I read, one of the actors said that they got him in there with full-body latex and just nose straws. Right. Yeah. And apparently, the people who were putting them you know, through all of this stuff and keep them in, a, in the plaster... Kept them in there longer than they needed to see if they would freak out. Mm. Okay. I don't love some of the things that I see in like this frat society that is Hollywood, to be honest with you. Yeah, I I hear that shit and it just, it makes me cringe. It's like, please don't send a rat to my house. I just don't, I don't want any of it. And this suit... It, of course, since it didn't have all this, the shit in it, it allowed a broader spectrum of movement, and it was a little bit less weight for the martial arts actors to move. The turtle suit, like I said, it was still really heavy and made of the same unbreathable latex material. And they were sealed into these suits for the entire time they were filming, like sealed in because they didn't want them to have any seam lines. So once you were in, you were in. So sometimes they were in there for 10 hours, days of shooting. And since it was so difficult to get in and out of them, actors have talked about figuring out that they have mild claustrophobia and another actor who couldn't make it out of the turtle head before getting sick. So that's just super unpleasant. Man, I can only imagine what those suits smelled like at the end of the day of filming. Oh, I don't even want to think about it. Yeah, probably gnarly, dude. So... (laughs) It's, gonna, it's just going to be every once in a while. <laughs> <laughs> they were also filming in the sweltering heat in July in North Carolina. Ugh. <laughs> I've been in North Carolina in the summer. And I've been close enough. It fucking sucks. Oh, it's heavy. Like, like the air. It's just heavy. No one wants to move if they don't have to. It's sweltering. Half the time it feels almost like you're just swimming 
while you walk because it's so humid. Yeah. Yes. Can you imagine the swamp ass in these things? I'm sorry, that's not appropriate. So (laughs) sorry, not sorry, but let's think about it for a second. So everyone's like, God, I hate you, Jessica. (laughs) Because of the heaviness of the suits and everything, it was super hard for the actors to get a reprieve for their muscles. So they created what amounted to these sawhorse contraptions that the actors could lean forward on. And it would relieve the pressure of the suits. And then they made bubbles for air conditioning, cooling for the actors. So they did, they, they tried to do things to mitigate some of that stuff. But in the interview, they were saying it was really funny to see all these actors in like turtle suits just like lying face down in a field, like all of them on these saw horses, just like, oh. I think I remember <laughs> seeing footage of this at one point in a behind the scenes. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's clever. And I'm glad they figured out something for them because I can't even imagine just carrying the weight is just so different they had done all this training to begin with of course to make sure that they could move in these things so they had the suits prior to the filming itself and were practicing in them but it's still just such a strange center of gravity you've got the shell behind you i mean i rollerblade and i've done a turtle dive with a large backpack i know it's different (laughs) yeah i was a boy scout and so i went backpacking a lot in the summers And I would have 60, 70 pound packs on because I'm a bigger guy. And your movement is so restricted, even with just this giant pack that you just have a couple of straps securing it onto your body with. I can't even imagine what it's like with a full latex rubber costume. Same. I guess the only thing that is good about that is that it's very secure to your body, but it's still like very secure to your body. (laughs) Right. Also... The actors' faces were somewhat visible, shining out of the mouths of the turtles if the light was too bright, or if the camera angle hit the turtles' faces straight on. So that was another reason that the film had such a dark vibe. It was, in large part, an attempt to try to conceal the actors. I remember that story about the actors being visible through the mouth, Mm. and so I'm sending you a picture because I remember seeing that at one point, and... So you should check it out and be horrified with me. (laughs) You can. Ew, that's so creepy. It's like behind the tongue. It's like in the tongue. It it, it almost feels like the shark's mouth where you've got the extra set of teeth ringing on the inside. And April looks really uncomfortable in this frame anyway, which is even funnier. She's like, oh, God, not only are they giant amorphic turtles, but now there's somebody in his mouth. Like, get me out of here. Turtles I can handle. (laughs) Wow. Thank you for that gift you have given me. No problem. Can you read this quote for me from an interview from The Hollywood Reporter? Absolutely. This is from Michelin Seasty, who played Michelangelo. For the audition, I came up with my full-tilt bozo version of martial arts because I had no idea what martial arts was. Steve Barron was in a tiny office, and the audition ended when I gave my then version of a roundhouse kick. I put my foot through the wall. So there I was with my foot stuck in the wall, and Steve laughed, which is the best thing that could have happened. He said, anyone who would put that much energy and go to that extreme for an audition deserves to be one of my turtles. (laughs) 
That's really sweet. Isn't that fun? I really like that. You know, the actors and the cast had some really sweet stories. I didn't hear a lot of the negative stuff other than, you know, like I said, the costumes, they just kicked your ass. Mm-hmm. You've probably gathered that there were multiple people involved in making each of the turtles come to life. There were actually four people dealing with the movements and voice. There was the actor who did the martial arts, the actor who did the drama and talking scenes, the animatronics controller, and the voice actor. Splinter had three people doing the puppeteering since he was fully a puppet and not a person in a suit and was not on any type of remote controls. So he never did any kind of weird wiggy stuff, which is better because imagine a rodent of unusual size. Like, (laughs) just moving on its own? No. (laughs) Pass. All of the drama actors had wanted to do the voices for their characters, and the scenes were initially shot that way. But they ended up casting different vocal actors for three of the four turtles. Josh Pais, who played Raphael, was the only actor to play both roles. He attributes his connection with the character's gritty New York accent and attitude to getting that role. Now, Corey Feldman was the voice of Donatello for movies one and three, but he was not asked back for number two. Politely put, he was working on his sobriety. Hmm. Oh, Corey Feldman. (laughs) Which, okay, I have a confession to make to everyone. (laughs) I low-key accidentally trolled Corey Feldman on Twitter. Because I hadn't read this far into things. And I was like, I just saw Corey Feldman pop up. And I was like, perfect. As I'm doing my research, why not? I'm just going to reach out to him. I'm going to see if maybe he wants to talk to me about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And so I sent him a direct message, which is turned on, by the way, in Twitter. And I don't know, because I can't tell when you can see if people have read it or if you can. But I don't think you can. Okay, I didn't think so. But either way, I sent him a message and it seems to have been delivered because it says delivered. So, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but then I was like, when you you mentioned to me, and then I read up later, I was like, oh shit, you were like, oh yeah, the second one, he was in rehab. And I was like, oh fuck. Yeah. Corey. Yeah, Corey (laughs) Feldman is uh, problematic, is the most diplomatic way that you can put it. He is a... A pretty terrible human being, honestly. And I kind of view him the same way that I view Lindsay Lohan, where there's a large amount of pity mixed in with my derision, but he is really bad these days. He's had a lot of assault allegations leveled against him, and he clearly has mental illnesses that are going untreated. He's also a product of that child star sausage factory that is Hollywood. Yeah. And I think that really fucked him up. And, you know, it was him and Corey Haim. They were Mm -hmm. kind of like, you know, real tight and then when Corey Haim died I think that was the start of him going real downhill yeah it sucks it really does suck he did a he he had a concert around here a couple of years ago and I went and it was at the Mystic and I went with two other friends and we because it was at the Mystic so there was not like seating or anything but there was seating but there was also like this front area where you could just be dancing or whatever so I'm so there I am in the front row. Wait, other hand. He grabbed my hand. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> so you have a second degree connection to Corey Feldman, which is why. OK, by the way, Corey, I thought we were friends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> 
which band was this? Was because this well, this wasn't his uh the current one where it's like Corey's Angels that I, is also his weird creepy sex cult. I can't remember. I feel like I have videos. I will send them to you later. He wasn't backed up by a bunch of women in lingerie, was he? I can neither confirm or deny. I was really baked that evening. It could be Corey's Angels then. Yikes. Well, or whatever the band is going by, but yeah, like. So I guess I was complicit in that. Yikes. (laughs) Oh, my. Do you want to read some fun recollections about our friend, friend of the pot? No, I'm not going to say that. Our friend, Mr. (laughs) Mr. Feldman. (laughs) Oh, man. There's two two quotes. (laughs) I'm trying to think of, of what would be an applicable label for Corey Feldman persona non grata of the podcast. I don't know. Um, sure. So Tochi who voiced Leonardo said this, getting over the fact that Corey Feldman was late a lot of the time. Other than that, everyone got along fine, which <laughs> I kind of love how petty that feels. Yeah. I, I, that's why I left it in. I almost did, but I was like, actually that's kind of funny. <laughs> Clearly, this was enough of a thing that you brought it up 20-some-odd years later. Yeah, okay, that's really funny. exactly. <laughs> okay, and then there was Leif Tilden, who was the suit actor for Donatello. Corey Feldman did my voice. I went up to him at the premiere and said, hey, I play the character you did the voice to, and he just totally dissed me. He didn't want to deal with me whatsoever. It was around the time that he got busted for cocaine in the backseat of his convertible or something. All I remember was walking by him, surrounded by cameras, professing his innocence to cocaine. Right outside the Ninja Turtles premiere. Kids are walking by. Damn, dude. You know how to make a first impression. A class act. Let it be known that I DM'd him prior to reading this quote. And the troll award goes to. You should should have followed up with offer rescinded. Oh, oh, he'll find out when he listens to this. <laughs> he will be one of our 30 downloads. I'm giving us so <laughs> much credit. <laughs> We've gotten up to 60 on a couple episodes we so have. far. That's exciting. Yes. It's very exciting. Keep listening, everyone. We love the attention. That's that's me talking, but Mike probably has some sort of. <laughs> I, I never claim to be a role model. <laughs> So as I mentioned, the film was shot mostly in North Carolina, with some iconic scenes being shot directly in New York City. Two months prior to the filming, director Gary Wesser had the opportunity to visit New York and view an abandoned subway station and the inside of some decommissioned water pipes and tunnels, which, of course, was reflected in the film. What did you think of the sewer scenes in their new abandoned subway station home? We're talking about the the sewer sanctum that they have in the first one, right? Correct. Yeah, it looked like it was something out of the cartoon. They had their sewer lair. It actually feels kind of realistic. I don't remember this when I was a kid, but I was actually a little bit surprised by how much trash they actually included in the setting. It looked kind of gross, as opposed to in the cartoon where you're like, oh, you could like just totally go surfing down there. It'd be fine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You totally get the vibe that, no, you are in a sewer. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think is really neat. And I I do think that had a lot to do with the fact that he did have the opportunity to physically go and look at a decommissioned subway station, go and look at a water pipe. 
and right. be able to get like, okay, this is the aesthetic I want. So, and I, I guess it's a pretty accurate replication of what used to be the New York City Hall station that they mm. decommissioned. And so they, I don't know if it's an exact replica, but it seems like from what they were saying in the interview, it was pretty close. Oh, this is the one that's like at the end of the line, I think, right? Where you used to be able to view it if you stayed on the line. You could actually see it when you would basically turn around. Potentially. Yeah, you go by it, but I... you don't go down the tunnel that it's in. That's the that's yeah. the only thing. So I think it might have been one of those split off fork tracks. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think you're right. I think it might be that one that you're talking about. I've heard about that in other films and other kind of things about people going and being able to see it or using it for different yeah. whatever. There were also a bunch of issues with the set production portion of the film. The set for the underground scenes was actually constructed underground. However, while digging what was supposed to be the eight-foot trench needed for the actual sets of the scenes, they hit water five feet down. Oops. Yeah. And then they had to go in and reinforce the sides and bottom with concrete, and it was this whole extra thing. And, yeah. <laughs> That's wild. I don't understand why you wouldn't just build a set, but okay. Whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they really like, want that. Like, I should say, build a set like you normally would, but. Yeah, above ground and closing it off from the light like a normal person. I don't know. Yeah. And they put these manhole covers over them, but apparently there were all these issues with the manhole covers and it wouldn't open or it's just, yeah. So it seemed like there were just a ton of issues with the whole thing. <laughs> Another interesting thing to note about this film, the normal film speed is 24 frames per second, but Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was filmed in 23 frames per second for the, for the normal dramatic scenes, which was incredibly unusual, and 22 frames per second for the fight scenes, which was pretty standard for martial arts fight sequences. This 1 in 24ths of a second difference allowed the somewhat clunky movements of the actors in these massive suits to seem a little more fluid and believable, which is super interesting. I love that. That's yeah. just like kind of a guerrilla filmmaking technique where you're just like, yeah, instead of going through all this effort, we've just got a, a duct tape solution that will work great. You can't go fast. I'll make you go fast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> The film opened March 30th, 1990, and it was an instant hit. The film made $25 million opening weekend, and they were on a non-holiday opening weekend. Now, these days, we have March. is kind of, March, April is when the summer releases hit, but that was not the case back then. No. And A Hunt for Red October had just come out. And so <laughs> apparently one of the people involved with Ninja Turtles saw one of the people involved with Hunt for Red October and they were like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. We hit it out of the park. It's going to be great. And the guy working for the Turtles is like, Blah, we will see my friend. And then just, you know, hit it out of the park with the Turtles. I've told you I got to go on the set for the Hunt for Red October, right? <gasps> no. Uh, my dad's executive officer in the Navy wound up being the technical advisor for that movie. So my mom pulled me out of school one day and we got to go down to the Universal Pictures lot and I got toured around the set for maybe 20 minutes, but it was just, it was insane to me. I had no idea how movies worked, but it was really cool to see walking into this warehouse 
and there's this thing that looks like a balsa wood basic construction set. And then you walk around to the other side and it was like being on the inside of a submarine, which I actually knew what they looked like because my dad had been in the Navy. And I think Alec Baldwin said hello to me, I think. Oh. I was seven. Like. That's so cool as fuck. Yeah, I got introduced to a bunch of people. It was a really cool moment. And so Hunt for Red October is one of those treasured movies that I will be buried with. That's amazing. Well, it didn't do as well as the Turtles. (laughs) There's no way it's going to compare box office wise to the Turtles. It's good Tim Curry film, but they all are, right? Sean Connery doing what Sean Connery does, which is speak with a Scottish accent while pretending to be some other nationality. Yeah, a la Highlander, which, again, again, (laughs) that whole choice was hilarious to me. Yeah, Marco Ramius, who just has a Scottish accent. It's fine. It's fine. (laughs) The haunt for Red October. I just say that sometimes, (laughs) I, by the way. Oh. Sorry to derail this. No, that's that's great. So, like I said, it broke all non-holiday box office records up to that point. There were lines around the block in movie theaters mm-hmm. across the country. And overall, the film raked in over $200 million. Which was just unheard of back then. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And while marketing the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle film, Pizza Hut, of course, that makes sense, sank over $20 million into ads on the radio, TV, and newspaper, and in rebate coupons. And while pizza got a spotlight, the actors themselves did not. Can you read the quote from Josh Pais, who played Raphael? This is going to make me sad, isn't it? This one might make you a little sad. I was the lead in this enormous movie, but at the time, they really didn't want much publicity on who the Turtles were, because they didn't want to ruin the illusion. That summer, Leif Tilden and I were on the beach somewhere, and there was a kid running around, and he had on a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles towel wrapped around him like it was a cape. And he was doing Ninja Turtle kicks and everything. He came in the vicinity of where Leif and I were hanging out, and I said, Hey, I was Raphael, and he was Donatello in the movie. The kid just kind of stopped and stared at us for a minute, and then his face crumpled, and he started crying and ran to his mother, Oof. which, oh, that's Ooh. rough. And it reminds me of when I worked at Disneyland and their whole thing was you got to preserve the magic of the characters. Like when the kid is meeting your friend who plays Mickey Mouse, they are meeting Mickey Mouse mm-hmm. and you do not ruin that for them. Exactly. Exactly. And I think this was what they were trying to do in that same way. Yeah, it makes sense, but like at the same time, that's got to sting it, if you were one of the actors. I would say so, especially if you're if you're as excited as I would say that most of the people working on this film seemed incredibly even in the 30 years, you know, interview that they did later, they're still so incredibly excited about this film and about having been a part of it. And so, yeah, you're right. I would be so disappointed myself if I couldn't share that. Yeah. So just like I would be disappointed if I couldn't share that I was friends with the Little Mermaid. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Yeah. So releases of the film were altered in the UK to omit certain weapons or phrases that had been outlawed, namely the word ninja and Michelangelo's nunchucks. And the film title was edited to be Teenage Mutant Hero Turtles. 
That's kind of like how they handled G.I. Joe. I'd have to double check on this, but I think G.I. Joe was marketed as Action Man or something like that. Got it. I think. I'm not sure. Don't yell at me if I got that wrong. (laughs) I know that G.I. Joe had a different name. Well, there were similar changes made in Germany as they used the same editing track as the UK and therefore had the omitted scenes and updated name. Germany also added funny sound effects during the fight scenes to try to soften and put a more comedic spin to the violence, which I found really intriguing. I haven't heard of that before. Yeah, and I mean, Germany's also still pretty restrictive about certain things, like media that comes out there, you cannot have the swastika on display. Yeah. It's real intense. Which makes sense. I get it. So let's move on to movie number two. Yeah. Can you please give us the plot for Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, Secret of the Ooze? Okay. (laughs) This movie basically picks up pretty much right after the first one ended. The turtles are living in April's apartment, and then they gradually relocate to a much cooler sewer lair than what they had. And then they also learn about the true nature of their origins. Meanwhile, the Foot Clan is still around, but they're definitely on their back foot at this place. I believe when the movie first shows them, it's just the few stragglers who survived the big battle at the end of the first movie, and they're at their fallback location in a junkyard. Shredder ends up returning to rebuild his army and then also winds up kidnapping the scientist who inadvertently helped create the turtles so that the foot can have their own mutants. We also get Ernie Reyes Jr. He was the guy who did the fighting stunts for Donatello in the first movie. They liked him so much, I know, that they gave him a fairly major role. He is the pizza delivery boy slash martial arts enthusiast Kino, who winds up helping the Turtles in their war against Shredder. And then we also get Razzie winner Vanilla Ice (laughs) showing up at the end to sing his greatest hit, Ninja Rap. Come on, that song slaps and you know it. It's so good. I love it. It's so good. I have it on one of my my exercise mixes because it's just like, how do you not like just go like run faster? When you're listening to that song. The only good thing that came out of that god-awful Michael Bay series was that for the second one at the premiere in New York, they had Vanilla Ice show up to do a surprise rendition of that song. It's a lot of fun to watch that video, and you can tell that everyone there is just living for it. Oh, I would be. That's like the only good thing out of that whole movie. (laughs) Because I've seen the Michael Bay Ninja Turtles movies, and I really wish I hadn't. Yeah, I haven't watched them. I'm hoping that we don't... I I don't feel like I need to, but maybe I need to for the deep dive for the Turtles. Don't think we do. I really have no desire to to listen to Michelangelo talk about how his shell is getting tighter while he's scoping out Megan Fox's ass. It's really gross. Okay, I'm not going to watch those. You've talked me out of it. Yeah, also, the action scenes in that movie are really bad. It's all CGI nonsense. It looks really confusing. Anyway, yeah, I mean, sorry. <laughs> TBH, you lost me at Michael Bay, so... I know. Yeah, I don't... I'm like, oh, do I want to watch explosions? If explosions were what put me to sleep, I would put on Michael Bay at night. Yeah, fair. But they don't. It's it's wax removal videos. Earwax removal videos. <laughs> I know you talked a little bit about this already, but what did you think about this movie on the rewatch? Again, I feel like this has aged better than I expected. The story's a lot more playful than the first movie, and it's definitely not as deep 
but I also really kind of dug how it felt like a film that's much more in keeping with the tone of the cartoons that so many of us were watching at the time. And I also idolized Ernie Reyes Jr. He had a TV show on the Disney Channel in the 80s called Sidekicks. Oh, yeah. And it was a spinoff of a Disney original movie for... I don't remember why it was called this, but it was called The Last Electric Night. And I just desperately wanted to be this kid. I have seen that, too. I recognize that. I wonder, that's not on Disney Plus, is it? Oh, we should check. Bring us Electric Night. Bring us Electric Night. (laughs) (laughs) They have a lot of their old stuff there. They've got Flight of the Navigator, and they've got a bunch of the old. Flight of the Navigator. They still haven't brought back Song of the South, have they? I don't think they will. I think it's too racist. I, I think that goes beyond the whole, we realize that this is insensitive, but rather than try to edit it, we're just going to keep it here and acknowledge the problematic presentation of the past. Yeah, which, thank you for the warning. And thank you for admitting yeah. that, you know, I, I, I understand that we have a past and we treated people differently in the past. We don't treat people like yep. that anymore. I can understand that that's how media was formed and that is the lens from which it comes, but you have to be be able to admit that. I was just thinking, if you watch the old Herbie movies, they definitely have some pretty intense Asian stereotypes, and they're not great, but you know they at least acknowledge it. It's the same with the Aristocats. They have a, a bit where there's a cat with buck teeth that's very clearly meant to be Asian at one point, and they yes. acknowledge that as well. Okay, yeah, you know, and yeah. acknowledge it, move on. It's the same thing with Bill and Ted. Like they sit there and. They do the thing where in the first two movies they hug and then they back off and they go fag. And you're like, okay, not great. But also in the 80s, this was acceptable. And it's not something that they do over and over again. Yeah. All right. Mildly problematic. Didn't show up in the latest one. Fine. Exactly. Exactly. I agree with you that this held up pretty well other than the fat phobic incel behavior at the beginning of the film. Yeah, Kino doesn't get a great introduction, does he? Uh, no. As he walks up, hits on a girl, and then immediately calls her fat when she rejects him. (laughs) It's not great. It's classic. It's classic incel behavior. (laughs) Every girl's like, yeah, you've been there. Been fucking there. The skinniest girl in the world will say, oh, been there. I will say I actually did like the intro overall, though, where it's showing all the different people eating slices of pizza. I thought that was really cute, including the cops that have the perp on handcuffs and they're eating while he's just like, really? Yeah, I did like I (laughs) I did like that. that. Yes. And I did like the movie fine, although I wasn't as impressed as I was with the first film. You know, it's fine. It's fine. No, it's fine. Yeah. Well, April didn't get to play a strong role here. She seemed very helpless much of the time in comparison to the last film. She was a little bit more of a prop than an actual leading character. Kino, I felt like, got more screen time than she did, to be honest. Oh, 100% I agree with that. Yeah. And I don't even like fully remember what she looks like. They keep switching out Aprils. I remember the actress from the first one, I think that was Judith Hogue, yeah. supposedly got fired because she actually defended the director of the first one because he got fired, I guess, in the post-production point because that was something that Brian Henson, who was the second unit director, had talked about. Mm. Which also, weird that Brian Henson was a unit director on yeah. Ninja Turtles. Well, and in one of the interviews I listened to or I watched he was saying that he wasn't expecting to be directing and it just happened that the guy that was kind of the opposite director stuff came up and all of the times that he had to leave were like the action scenes and he's like i got to direct all of the action scenes 
Yeah, like Brian Henson knew what he was doing too because like he grew up in his dad's company and he did a whole bunch of puppetry stuff and all that. It's really cool to see what he is capable of when he's making good stuff. We just won't talk about, what was that one that he did recently, The Happy Time Murders? What? I don't know about this one. Oh man, it's a, it's a Muppet murder mystery with live action people mixed in. So it's like Melissa McCarthy is the star and it's filthy. It's really like there are moments in it that are just hysterical, but it's not a good movie. And Brian Henson directed it. And I feel like he was working through some stuff because there's like a, there's a puppet jizz scene that goes on way too long. It's funny for a while and then then it's not great. And compared to his dad, who was like, I don't know that I want to do Ninja Turtles because it might be slightly too graphic and bloody for my audience base. That's quite the uh, pendulum swing there. So, you know, the villains, they were very cartoony and not very intimidating. I mean, yeah, they they did end up being like babies, which makes sense based on like the turtle's trajectory. It's like, okay, that is kind of funny that they took it in that direction. I wasn't expecting it, but they do look very cartoony and, you know, the one looks very Skeksy-ish. Oh, yeah. Snapping turtle. I think that's Toka. Yeah. Oh, oh my God, that bit where they're with the scientist and he's like, they're not stupid, they're babies. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then, like, one of them hits the other with, like, a pan or something and goes, bang. And he goes, all right, they're stupid babies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that was pretty funny. That was pretty good. They were supposed to be versions of Bebop and Rocksteady, but Laird and Eastman didn't want them actually using those characters in Laird and Eastman are weirdly precious movie. about their stuff, man. It's weird. Yeah. They're like, yes, you can do this. No, you can't do this. But I, I do like that there was some back and forth and some give and take. Like, okay, well, we're going to take the general premise of what this is and just alter it enough so you're not going to be mad at us, but we still want to use it. <laughs> and this film definitely like merged more into the 90s. Definitely more 90s than the other one. You had all the people wearing like the super 90s get up it felt like home to be honest with you i've been rollerblading recently i'm just like settling right into my past self with this whole thing (laughs) (laughs) and now due to the popularity of the first film the sequel was absolutely anticipated and they were given an even higher budget of 25 million dollars that was a lot of money back then oh yeah it was a lot of money for me now (laughs) maybe not for hollywood but they did this on an even shorter time frame They again used the North Carolina film studios for most of the filming. And a stuntman actually broke his ankle filming the scene where the turtles fall into the net. Fun fact. Maybe not so fun for him. Would you please read this quotation from Turtlepedia for us about another one of the filming locations? Yeah. The building used for the entrance to April's apartment is the office of the New York location of Jim Henson's Creature Shop, which did the animatronics work for the film. The film is dedicated in memory of Muppets creator Jim Henson. This makes it the first movie dedicated to Henson, the second being The Muppet Christmas Carol. This is the first TMNT movie to include a dedication. The second would be TMNT, like actually just TMNT, which was dedicated to the late Mako. Oh, Mako. I remember they did that for uh, Avatar The Last Airbender when he died, too, because he voiced Mm -hmm. Uncle Iroh. Yeah. So the second film came out less than a year. After the first, released on March 22nd of 1991. The other one was March 30th of 1990. That's wild. Super quick. 
the film got mixed or negative reviews from the critics, most critics stating that it diverged from the darker tone of the first film, as it contained mostly hand-to-hand combat, and the turtles rarely used their weapons on screen. But it did absolutely wonderfully with the audience, who had been greatly anticipating the sequel. In total, this film grossed over $78 million. So not too bad. It's not the $200 million from the, the first movie, but it's still, like, that is not, that's nothing to sneeze at. No, and I don't know if these figures include the worldwide box office, but, but international box offices back then were not that much of a thing. I think this one did, because they had a couple different numbers for... Okay. Yeah. But I mean, that's still a pretty respectable haul. That's like, you know, oh. three times its budget. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So... Yeah. Will you do us a favor and recap Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3? <laughs> <laughs> sure. The turtles go back to feudal Japan to rescue a time-displaced April O'Neil, and then they wind up helping a rebellion against, I don't know, was he a tyrannical samurai lord? I still don't quite know vague. what his official position was. So vague. And then Casey Jones has to babysit some dudes from the past in present-day New York and winds them teaching them about hockey. The end. Yeah, that's all that happened. You're correct. <laughs> no, really, though, that's all that happened. So, <laughs> it was, yeah. How how was this? How was this movie for you, Mike? It's fine. <laughs> Standard Mike. Classic Mike. <laughs> I think it is arguably the most cinematic of the Turtles movies. There's genuinely some beautiful photography and camera work in this flick. The action scenes are a lot of fun. Most of the jokes land pretty decently, but it just feels... I don't know. It, it feels like a movie that's going through the motions without actually saying or doing anything significant. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The substance somehow seems to be missing. It's all frosting, no cake. Oh, yeah. That's too sweet. It's too sweet. Yeah. Honestly, like the weakest thing about this was the puppetry. The turtles don't look nearly as good as they did in the last couple of flicks. Like their bodies are much more obviously rubber. Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing is the mouth movements are just janky it really just looks like they're opening and closing mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then and th- there's an occasional emote but when they're delivering lines it is real obvious that you're just watching some motors go yeah like splinter looks like something out of Chuck E. cheese like he's very static he just sits there yeah literally a lot of the time if i remember it was him sitting in a chair talking to casey jones or the the time displaced prince from japan who's hanging out in the headquarters yep meditating you know yeah exactly i did like the idea of the time travel elements like that felt very ninja turtles i liked that the movie was hinting at something about the turtles having been to ancient japan before based on there's that ominous scroll in the samurai lord's castle but it's also this dangling plot thread that's never resolved and i remember that bugging me when i saw the movie when i was 11 and it's even more glaring now but (sighs) Even now, it's decent. It's a flick that I wouldn't be irritated to watch with the kids if I was a parent. For those of you out there who don't have children, (laughs) there is a lot of really shitty children's entertainment in movies and television out there. And when you've got kids, you watch a lot of it. (sighs) This is one of those things where I would not sit there and scroll through my phone while I was in the theater, like in the back, just 
praying, <laughs> praying for death's sweet release. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I agree. It was okay. There were some pretty glaring plot point inconsistencies, like you were saying. For example, the rules surrounding who had to be touching the scepter and who would go back in time. And I do wish that they would pick an April already, (laughs) but I did enjoy the premise of the film and it was pretty action packed. And you were spot on about the turtles and Splinter not looking as convincing this time around. The reason behind that was because they changed animatronic studios from Henson's The Creature Shop to All Effects Company, who, of course, you've heard of. Just kidding. Nobody has. Yeah, like, are they even still the company now? I don't even know. I could look it up, but do we care? They probably did the equivalent of a government contractor who made a lower bid. It wouldn't surprise me because Henson was still around. I mean, the the company of itself was still around, but it would still be astronomically expensive. So if you're trying to cut a corner, I mean, that might, it might be yeah. the Henson corner. I mean, the Henson company is still a thing. Yeah, of course. They still do a lot of work and they're really good at everything they do. Mm, yeah. But this change, or rather the costuming, was one of the main critiques about the film. It was the... Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, the change in appearance and believability behind the characters. They just seemed a little goofy. And like you said, so obviously rubbery. Viewing it in high def also, it's much more apparent. So apparent. And their eye goes like a weird direction sometimes. And the mouth doesn't quite meet up. It didn't say this in the information I was reading. And I'm sure if I dug hard enough, I could find it. I don't know if they filmed this in the same frame sequences that they did for the first two. I don't know. Yeah. So, but it might, that actually might be part of it too. If it seems a little clunkier, maybe it wasn't filmed as quickly. I don't know. Mm. But the film was released on March 19th, 1993. So they gave themselves some extra time in comparison to how quickly number two was filmed and released. And it had an initial budget of $21 million and grossed $42 million. So, you know, they doubled. It doubled. That's respectable. But I'm sure that was not what they wanted. Yeah, I'm sure not. I mean, they did quit the live action after this point for quite a while. Yeah. So, makes sense. I think there was a live action TV series in the late 90s or early aughts, but I also I know that that one also didn't do well either. Yeah, there was there were some and we'll talk about this like I said in our I'm I'm such a tease this episode. I'm totally teasing this episode. <laughs> I really am doing a turtles episode and research into it everyone. So we will be hearing about the turtles coming up here. They had some other kind of fun stuff that they did live action as well. They did some touring weirdnesses that we will get into. Oh, yeah. that was so good. Uh-huh. So exactly what uh-huh. you're talking about too. Yeah, it's it's a trip. It's a ride. It's tubular, dude. So it's it'll be fun. So fun fact. And this will be our our fun, our last fun fact to round out the conversation about our turtles here. The working title for this film was A Feudal Fable, which good job not going in that direction. (laughs) Hmm. Turtles in time is better. Yes. Yes, exactly. Do you have any last thoughts about these films before we wrap it up? I got to say, I'm pretty impressed at. A, how none of these movies are great, but none of them are actually bad either, and how they're still very watchable. Yeah. 
And it's interesting when you sit there and you look at this and you realize that this is just the tip of the proverbial iceberg. I mean, the turtles are still going real strong these days. Oh, they sure are. What about you? You know, I had such a fun time rewatching all of these. I truly did. I love the Ninja Turtles. Like I said, they hold such a, a dear place in my heart. And it just brought back so many good memories of the reason why I like the turtles. I love that the turtles form this good unit because they have all of these different personality traits and they have different facets and they complete the team in the strengths and the weaknesses that they bring to the mix. Yeah. So, and I think the movies do a really good job of showing that. Yeah, I like how they keep on stressing teamwork. Yes. Yeah. And of course, the moody one keeps walking off, which I love. Raphael. <laughs> the sarcastic <laughs> one. <laughs> I also appreciate that they try to make each of the turtles grow. They try to do some actual character development in all the movies. I will even acknowledge that with the third one where... Raphael has the whole thing where he counsels that little kid Yoshi mm-hmm. about anger management of all things. Which was like, okay, dude, please take that page. <laughs> I dug it. I think I mentioned this, but there's a, a new comic called The Last Ronin, mm. where it's like, you know, the proverbial last Ninja Turtle story where one of the turtles shows up in a cyberpunk dystopia in New York and he's basically on his bucket list of revenge and it turns out he is the only turtle that's still left it's pretty good it kind of reminds me of that where the turtles are still going strong and they're still pretty good overall yeah i'd agree well let's mosey on along to our brain wrinkles and this is the part of the episode where we discuss something comic or comics related that's been lurking deep within the wrinkles of our nerdy brains. (laughs) There was some eerily timely Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles news that dropped just a couple days ago. Do you want to bring our listeners up to speed? Yeah, we are apparently going to get a new Ninja Turtles movie that's A, going to be animated, and then B, produced by Seth Rogen, of all people. Huzzah! Yeah, it's coming out in August 2023. Brendan O'Brien is handling the writing duties, and he may not be a familiar name, but he co-wrote the Neighbors movies, which Rogan starred in. Rogan made the announcement on Twitter with a photo of Leonardo's science notebook, and it teases a lot of really fun details, and it actually feels like something that a 15-year-old would do. It's very cute. And then the movie is also going to be directed by Mike Rianda. He's got a pretty small portfolio, but it's a good portfolio. His work includes the animated series Gravity Falls, which is absolutely fantastic. And I believe is on Disney Plus. If you haven't seen it yet, it is hysterical. I'm putting it on my phone right now because I'm interested. It's very cute and very weird. Once you watch it, you'll be like, oh, yeah, no, that is absolutely something that Mike and Sarah would watch. (laughs) Nice. He also did the movie recently, I think it came out this year, called The Mitchells vs. the Machines, which is also very good. Mm. And then Seth Rogen's produced a lot of really cool stuff over the past couple of years, including the recent series on Amazon, Invincible, which is an animated adaptation of the comic book from Image. So I think he'll give Turtles fans something they'll really enjoy. Yeah. 
And I do like that he's around our age. So I just know that that's something that he grew up with, that he wants to treat this thing right, you know? Yeah. And also, he seems like a pretty cool dude. He has openly acknowledged recently that a lot of his early material doesn't work anymore. Yeah. He aged well. And also earlier this year, he got into a very public spat with Ted Cruz on Twitter, which was so delicious that it must have been fattening. Oh, that was such like, a such a gem. I loved it. Seth Rogen, not even future friend of the podcast, just friend of the podcast in our dreams. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Seth Rogen hit us up, but we can only dream. <laughs> Dear Seth Rogen, you are our hero. <laughs> Come hang out with us. <laughs> We're a good time, we promise. Mike will bake you snacks. Ooh. I will. Yeah. Yeah, man. He makes really good snacks. I and they don't even they're they're not even special snacks. They're just, oh, they're just delicious cookies. Snacks. We could make some special snacks between you and I. We could collab. We could we yeah. could make this work for Seth Rogan. Seth, hit us up. <laughs> 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 well, that's all for this episode, my dudes. We'll be back in two weeks for more tubular comic adventures. Until then, we'll see you in the stacks. Cowabunga! I want you to speak in that accent from now on. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Jessica Frazier and Mike Thompson. Written by Jessica Frazier and edited by Mike Thompson. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who goes by cut underscore thistles on Instagram. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to TencentTakes.com or shoot an email to TencentTakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast is Tencent Takes. Jessica is Jessica with a, and Jessica is spelled with a K. And Mike, aka yours truly, is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. <laughs>